Now, usually what we do is we walk verse by verse through um, passages of Scripture. Uh, we have been studying through the Psalms. Uh, we are on uh, Psalm 16, and Lord willing, the next time I preach, we will be going through Psalm 16 verse by verse. But um, our regularly scheduled program, so to speak, is um, providentially interrupted um, with a message on fasting. And I'm going to get into... Um, I'm going to get into the message in a moment, but before I do, I want to say something that I think is uh, very important. Um, Last night, uh, when we were going through uh, our family devotional, one of the phrases that um, caught my attention, perhaps more than it did in previous times, was the phrase, the gospel of God. Um, Paul uses that sometimes in his writings. He uses it in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12, the gospel of God. I'm going to give a message today on the subject of fasting. But first, I want to make it clear, if you are here and you are not a Christian, you haven't come to a point where you know that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and that your sins are forgiven, I would not want you to think, even for a microsecond, that fasting is some rung on a religious ladder whereby fallen men and women can make their way to God. As though I'm giving you another piece of the puzzle. If you get this fasting thing and combine it with this prayer thing and that church attendance thing and that Bible reading thing, and if that keeps happening, like you keep doing those things and your good outweighs your bad, then you could get into heaven. Please do not mistake a message on fasting for that. The reason why I called your attention to that phrase, the gospel of God, I was just taken back last night when we were going through our family devotional and I saw that phrase. You've heard it so many times from here, gospel. And the gospel is that Greek word, euangelion. It's the word that means essentially good news. You take the verb form of that, it means to pre- preach or proclaim good tidings. And isn't it amazing that God would have good news for fallen men and women who rebel against Him? Right, we're all sinners. Every one of us here, we share that in common. Every one of us are sinners. We've all sinned against the real holy God of the universe. And one day, everybody will see Him. One day, every mouth will be stopped, according to what the Scripture tells us, and the whole world will become guilty before God. One day, the God who we do not see with our eyes now will be made clear And Jesus Christ, His Son, will be shown to be Lord of all. And my hope for everybody in this room is that you would hear the good news of God. The Gospel of God. The bad news is that we are all sinners. And whether we can conceive of this or not, we deserve the judgment and justice of a righteous God. But the good news of God, imagine that God has good news for a whole world of people that if left to ourselves would just be raising our fists against Him. Every one of us would look like Nineveh in the days of Jonah pre-repentance. Every one of us would look like the Jews and Gentiles who conspired together to kill Jesus. We all would look like that if apart from God's providence and the way that He uses government to restrain sinful men, the way that He uses different things, even conscience and things like that to restrain us, if He didn't restrain us, there's no telling how depraved and how sinful we would be. And yet, against a mass of humanity that is like that by nature, children of wrath, God proclaims good news. And what is the good news of God? That He sent His Son. His eternally begotten Son, to use language from John chapter 1, who is always in His bosom. Who is always in this love relationship with the Father. He in love sent His Son. And in love the Son laid down His life. So that sinners like you and me could be forgiven. If we would believe the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that He was raised from the dead, the scripture says, you shall be saved. The other side of that coin is repentance. Jesus' first messages that we see essentially preached, Jesus came preaching essentially the same message as John the Baptist, repent. And then in Luke 24, He tells His disciples to preach repentance. To have a change of thinking that manifests itself in a change of behavior. So if you're here today and you come in with a way of thinking that says, I think I'll make it to God on my own. I think my righteousness will outweigh my unrighteousness. Whatever that way of thinking is, I'm calling you to repent. Not because I'm saying it, but I'm just kind of reflecting the words of the king who told his disciples, preach repentance. Turn from that thinking. Turn from serving self and sin and by the grace of God, receive Christ as Lord and Savior. 
So please, I'm going to speak on the subject of fasting, but do not mistake that for a rung on the ladder to reach God. This, all this is, is for those who have come to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is helping those who are forgiven of their sins understand another aspect of what life in Christ looks like. Does that make sense? Well, I want to speak to you today um, about the subject of fasting. Uh, fasting is, I think, um, an easily overlooked, though it is an, an, an expected, aspect of the Christian life. And there's much that can be said about fasting, right? Maybe in, in the health world today, you hear a little bit more about fasting than you did in previous days. You might hear about time-restricted eating. You might hear about intermittent fasting. You might hear about the benefits of fasting and how it helps your body to go into a process called autophagy and so on and all of those things. I'm not here to talk about that. <laughs> I, it doesn't surprise me, though, that there would be benefits because when you think of how God even ordained there to be that Sabbath rest, and that it would be good for man, biologically, psychologically, to have a day of rest, not just to run himself or herself ragged throughout the you know, subsequent weeks and sequential weeks and so on. Even as the land was to be given a rest per the Mosaic Law, and that would be good for the land and the soil would be healthier, it doesn't surprise me that fasting would be good for men and women biologically. And while that is true, and there's much benefits that can be enumerated, many benefits that can be enumerated, our concern today is to say, what does the Scriptures, what do the Scriptures say about the subject of fasting? And I will say, I think the Scriptures have a lot to say about this topic. But this topic, fasting, can be easily overlooked, and I have some guesses as to why that might be. And I don't think this is comprehensive, but these are some of the possibilities as to why fasting can be overlooked. Number one, in my opinion, we have been so abundantly blessed as a society, right? That, you know, many of us have never even prayed, give us this day our daily bread because we did not know if bread was coming, so we asked God for it. We just maybe said it because we knew we should have said it because Jesus taught his disciples to say it, but we knew there was bread in the refrigerator. And we knew there was, there was money around enough at least to get a loaf of bread. And we've been so blessed as a society that we're used to eating, in some cases, anywhere between maybe two or three or four or five or six times a day. And in some cases, there's just snacking that goes on all day. And the only time people aren't eating is when they go to sleep. So I think maybe one of the reasons why we're just not used to thinking about the subject of fasting is because it really just doesn't enter our minds because we just enjoy the blessing of food. So much. And for some people, if they hear about fasting, it's so dreadful, it's so fear-provoking, it's so anxiety-producing that they just jettison it out of their minds. Like, I don't even want to go there. I can't even imagine not eating. So that's one of the reasons, I think, why. Uh, two, I think for some, there may be confusion. Confusion as to what, does, what do the Scriptures say about fasting for Christians? Right, because you look in the Old Testament and you see like a lot of fasting happening. You see David fasting, Nehemiah fasting, Ezra fasting, Esther fasting. You see Samuel calling the nation of Israel to fast. You see a lot of fasting going on. You're like Moses fasted for forty days in the supernatural fast without bread and without water. And you're like, how does that, how does that carry over to me? And then you look in the New Testament and you see some insight there, but maybe not enough to know how it applies to you. So I think there could be some confusion there. And I'm hoping to clarify the confusion. Uh, three, there may be some confusion that may exist among people as to when is the proper time to fast. Some people may not know, like, well, what provokes fasting? And to take it a step further, I could see some people thinking like this. If God hears my prayers through the blood of his son, what do, what do I think I'm doing if I'm fasting? See, some Christians can start going through this kind of thought process. God hears me through Jesus. He's made a way. The veil has been torn. So now if I add fasting to my prayers, do I think that I am in some way trying to augment the perfect work of Christ? I do not want to do that. Therefore, I won't fast because the work of Christ is sufficient enough for me to enter into the holy place. And I don't think that should stop you from fasting, but I do applaud that mindset because you're thinking rightly, but you don't want to stop there. You want to come around to our Christian responsibility, the Christian expectation of fasting. More about that when we get into the message. I, I still think in other cases, there may be issues that are just practical. 
people may not fast. They're like, I want to fast, but I just don't know like, how to do it. Like, do I fast for 24 hours? Can I fast for a short amount of time? Did anyone fast in the Bible for like, you know, under 24 hours? And if I fast, can I have something other than water? Is like a juice fast biblical? Should I just have water? Is that like the way I'm supposed to do it? What happens if I have, and you start asking all these questions, and you have so many questions that you end up being paralyzed into like this constant analysis that never produces the action of fasting. Because you're like, I just don't know how to answer all these questions. So I'll put it off to another day. Hopefully this is the day. Not necessarily that you'll fast today, but that you'll have those questions answered. Uh, Some people uh, might be scared of fasting because they might think that it leads to pride. They might think, yeah, I don't want to fast because isn't that like what the Pharisees did? Right? Like they fasted twice a week. And so therefore I don't want to be like the Pharisees. Therefore I won't fast. So those are just some reasons. You may have other ones in your mind, but what I'm hoping will happen today is as we get into some of these texts, I want you to see a couple of things. I want you to see that there is an expectation for Christians to fast. That's the first thing. So first, for you and I to just see from the Scriptures, there's a clear expectation that fasting would be a part of the Christian life in some way, shape, or form. And then number two, I want us to see when we are to fast, using numerous examples from the scriptures to inform our understanding. And then, Lord willing, in the days ahead, perhaps, um, doing some fast together. But that's for another day. I want us to see. It's not going to be comprehensive. I'm not going to go through every single text in the scriptures that talks about fasting. But I do think that this will be helpful. One qualifier, and I can make many qualifiers. I don't want anybody leaving here today Um, feeling condemned if you do not fast, especially if there are medical issues that would keep you from that. Right? If you, I would want you, and I'm just encouraging this, this is just prudent, that if you hear the message saying, you're like, okay, I'm going to fast, and you're on like pharmaceutical medicine, well, you want to get that checked with your physician first. Because I may not know much about the dynamics of that, but I do understand that fasting can, pr- can promote the toxicological effects from even very good pharmaceutical drugs. So you want to check. And for other physical conditions, I wouldn't want anybody to be put in jeopardy. You want to do this wisely. And if for some reason in God's providence, you are not able to do this at this time, I don't want you leaving feeling condemned. If you are in Christ, you have the very righteousness of Christ imputed to your account. And maybe this responsibility will be enacted by you another time. But nonetheless, let's get into this together. We'll begin with a reminder that fasting is an expectation of the Christian life. Fasting is indeed a Christian discipline. It's not just a Jewish discipline uh, taken up by Daniel and others in the Old Testament. It's a Christian discipline. Now, during the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught his disciples, we see this in Matthew chapter 6, that certain good acts of religious devotion and worship, like charitable deeds done, you know, giving to those who are in need, or prayer, or fasting, were not to be done so as to seek the admiration of men and women. They were to be done out of love and worship. They weren't to be done so as to be seen. They were to be done because they were just sincere acts of worship. You can see, if you were to look through Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, you'd see a kind of theme here. A kind of theme that sincerity is often helped by secrecy. Sincerity is often helped by secrecy. So when Jesus is talking about giving or prayer or fasting, his disciples are not to be those kind of people that want it to be public so that they receive admiration from men and women. They are to do so privately, knowing that their heavenly Father sees. Jesus' disciples are to be content, and I would even say excited about the fact that the Father sees what's in secret. And so often, secrecy promotes sincerity. Now granted, now if you were to just read Matthew 5, you would see that Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So there's a balance in the Christian life that we have to walk, right? When Jesus is talking there in Matthew 5, the idea is don't let fear, possibly even indifference or apathy, keep you from not letting your light so shine before men. Do those good works in Jesus' name. Matthew 6, but don't do such things so as to be seen by men. So that's, how you, that's the balance you have to walk in a Christian life. Well, I want us to look at... Um, Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 18. 
And we're going to see something very important as it relates to fasting here. Reading from the text, Whenever you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do, for they neglect their appearance so that they will be noticed by men when they are fasting. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. For our consideration today, I want to call your attention primarily to that phrase, but you, when you fast. When you fast. It's not a matter of if you fast. It's when you fast. The implication is clear. Jesus expected His disciples to fast. It wasn't a matter of if. It was a matter of when. And when His disciples fast, they were not to call attention to themselves. They don't wear t-shirts that say, look at me, I'm fasting today. They don't do things like that. They don't put on gloomy faces like a lot of people did in Jesus' day to so call attention to themselves. Like, look at me, I'm doing a great religious act. I haven't eaten in so long. You know how hungry I am. You know how much I love God. They don't do those kind of things. Secrecy so often works to promote sincerity. It's a way of just making sure that the guardrails are up so that your motives are right. And if you feel tempted to drift, you're like, ah, I don't want to let people know about this. Uh, there is a time for public fasting. We'll get to that a little bit later on in the message. But I call your attention to first here, the when, when you fast. If you fast so as to seek the acclaim of men, the acclaim of men is your reward. That's what you get. So if you say, what do I get out of fasting? If you do it to be seen by men, there you go. Their applause, whatever that looks like. like. Wow, he's religious. Or, wow, he's so much more spiritual than I. There's your reward. But I want you to see another when here. There's another when. There's not only the when of the expectation of Christian fasting, but there's a when that we could easily miss. The when in verse 18. Jesus said, I'm kind of picking up mid-thought here, so that your fasting will not be noticed by men, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So on the one hand, we have a duty that is prescribed and expected for the Christian. Fasting. And on the other hand, we also have a promise that is adjoined to the duty. The reward. You're like, well, what is the reward? I don't know exactly what the reward will be when you fast and seek the Lord. But I know that your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you. So if you fast with sincere motives for right reasons, your Father sees it. And Jesus said He'll reward you. So the when of fasting isn't only the expectation of Christian fasting, it's the reward that the Father renders unto such ones who seek Him in prayer and fasting. And as far as what that reward is, will you let the Father determine what that is in His time and in His way and how He chooses to manifest that. But I love that. you got the duty that's expected, but you also have the reward that's promised. So it's a little bit about fasting there. But if we were to go on in Matthew's Gospel, you turn ahead to Matthew chapter 9, you can see the expectation of fasting spoken of there in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 and 15. In those verses, we read the following. Then the disciples of John came to him, asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, when we consider the parallel accounts of this found in Luke and Mark's Gospel, it appears that not only were John's disciples asking this question, but the Pharisees had this kind of question as well. It was common for the disciples of John to fast. It was common for the Pharisees and their disciples to fast. You probably well know it's common in many religions for people to fast. But it was noticeable to at least the disciples of John and the Pharisees that Jesus' disciples were not fasting. And they didn't understand why they were not fasting. To answer that question, Jesus uh, used a familiar analogy. He said, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Can they? 
So this tells you something about fasting. In other words, fasting is an outworking of a kind of mourning. So if you're confused about when you should fast, here's a little bit of insight to that. Fasting is an outworking of some sort of mourning. It could be a mourning over one's sin. It could be a mourning over a great and dire need. It could be a mourning of the salvation that you long to see come to a family member who doesn't know Christ. It could be the longing that you have for health to come to somebody that you love and care about that is severely afflicted. It is some sort of mourning that is so often connected with fasting. Now back to the text, Jesus is saying, well, the the attendants of the bridegroom, they're not going to fast, they're not going to mourn while the bridegroom is there. This is a time for celebration. He's using the analogy of a wedding celebration. You wouldn't have a bunch of people mourning during a wedding celebration, crying out and putting on sackcloth and ashes. No, the wedding time was a celebratory time. And Jesus was there. It was a time of celebration. God in the flesh was there. But here's where the expectation of fasting comes in. Jesus says, But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In other words, there would come a time with Jesus' disciples, ultimately post-ascension, where Jesus wouldn't be there. At least not in the bodily form that He was during those days. And in those days then they will fast. So you see that? The expectation of, a Christian, of the Christian life for fasting. Matthew 6 and Matthew 9. When you fast, Matthew 6, and they will fast, Matthew chapter 9. There's the expectation of fasting for Jesus' disciples. We also learned a little bit about how to fast, not to do it so as to be seen by men, to practice secrecy, which often promotes sincerity, and that fasting is so often connected with a type of mourning or brokenness or desperation. Now a little bit more in the New Testament. We go through the New Testament, we see other examples of fasting. In Acts chapter 13, you could turn ahead in your Bibles if you wanted to see this. In Acts chapter 13, we see the New Testament church fasting. So in the opening verse of Acts chapter 13, we are told that there was a, at the church in Antioch prophets and teachers in that first century church. We then get a listing of some of them, which in itself is very interesting. This would be a great verse to exposit and teach on. Barnabas, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. That's just amazing to me. You have this man, Menean, who's apparently in a, a leadership position of some form or another in the early church, and he grew up in the same house as Herod the Tetrarch. Amazing how you could have two people growing up in the same place and one have two, and both have completely different outcomes in life. One is probably a relatively unknown person in those days, this guy Manean. And Herod, who served to kill John the Baptist, was probably well known. And yet it's the guy who was not well known that was the guy who is to be esteemed. A man who had a leadership position in the church, grew up in the same place as Herod the Tetrarch. But anyway, back to the matter at hand. And Saul, that would Saul, who we know as the Apostle Paul. And then in verses 2 and 3 we read, While they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now the Greek word for ministering here, when you look in verse 2 and it says, While they were ministering, It's a Greek word that is often associated with priestly service. It's only used three times in the New Testament. One time it's used in that way when it's used in Hebrews. It's often used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to speak of service at the tabernacle. So this is like a priestly term, priestly service. Just so you know, the word could be used to speak of either sacred, like priestly service, or civil duty. So that word ministering has this picture, at least in this context, of priestly duty being worked out. Well, what did that look like for these guys? It probably included worship and prayer, probably for them since they were in the teaching role in the church, teaching and just serving in some way, shape, or form within that first century church. And then we're told here that they were also fasting. They were ministering to the Lord and fasting. Now, was this 
on a specific day that they had set aside for fasting? Maybe. I would think in light of the context, it was probably in light of a particular need that was before them, likely, given the context, fasting to see how the word of God should go out from them. From Antioch. Lord, I'm I'm assuming this, I can't say this with definitude, but that they were fasting and praying, saying, Lord, who would you have to send out from among us in Antioch to bring the word of God to places that have not heard the word of God? I'm thinking in light of the context, that's what was going on. So they were seeking the Lord. They had a need, most likely, to see what the Lord would tell them with regards to who should go. And the Lord answered. And he said, set aside for me, Saul and Barnabas, to the work that he had called them to. So fasting was a part of devotion and dependence of his disciples. In this case, the leaders of the church being expressed uh, through fasting as they sought God's help and direction. So that tells you a little bit more about fasting. When do I fast? There was a seeking. We, We need God's help. We need direction. We are dependent. Again, it forms when the when of fasting, I think, a little bit more. There's another example. You go to the next chapter. In Acts chapter 14, in Acts chapter 14, 33, we see that Paul and Barnabas are making their return trip from places on that missionary journey where they had preached the gospel, where they had made disciples. Now they're going back through those places. They're strengthening the souls of disciples, telling them that we, through many tribulations, have to enter the kingdom of God. They're reminding the disciples that this isn't going to be an easy ride. This is going to be hard. And they're reminding them about that. But then something else that they did, we see in verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Now, there's a lot you could say about this verse. This tells you about the importance of leadership in a local church. It tells you the importance of local church having elders, right? And, and you can't just say, well, we're just going to be a body of believers, you know, someplace meet together, and we don't really need those who are called to the eldership. No, you read 1 Timothy, you read Titus, you read a text like this, and you see that it was so important that they go back to these disciples, and they pray, and they fast, and they appoint elders, so that the people might be shepherded, and taught, and fed the Word of God. But for our purposes, we notice that with such a serious and solemn task as appointing leaders, a join to their praying was fasting. They fasted. Why did they fast? Because it was serious to a degree that they sought the Lord in this way that was even just beyond. They were depriving themselves of food. just Not even just their normal prayers, but saying we're going to set aside food because we are earnestly declaring to the Lord our need and our dependence for His direction in this matter. Again, associate with fasting this need, this sense of need, this sense of desperation. And there are other New Testament examples. So if you were going to go through the New Testament, you have other examples. The best example is uh, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, we're told that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. Interestingly, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was fasting when he saw the vision of the angel of God appearing as a man standing before him in bright clothing, uh, directing him to Peter, who would tell him all the words by which he and his household would be saved. Acts chapter 11, verse 14. Anna the prophetess, you might remember her from Luke chapter 2, verse 37. She was a widow, and she was about 84 years old, and she served God with fastings and prayers night and day. Saul of Tarsus, after encountering the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, he was blinded, and he was three days without sight, and during those three days, he neither ate food nor drank. Acts chapter 9, verse 9. Those are New Testament examples. There are other New Testament texts that are disputed texts for one reason or another. Disputed because maybe the earliest manuscripts do not include a reference to fasting. There's some debate about some of those. Matthew chapter 17, verse 21. Uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 29 is one of those ones that actually it can really kind of go either way. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5 is another one. And then some references in 2 Corinthians 6, 5 and eleven twenty seven. 27. Um, you could look at those texts and you say, was Paul speaking about fasting or voluntarily going without food at certain times? So those are some disputed texts. There, you have a little bit of an overview of fasting as it's seen in the New Testament. 
But now what I want to do to drive us to a point of application, I want to look at some of my favorite examples from the Old Testament. Because if you are a New Testament Christian living in the first century, you knew, like the Apostle Paul said, that all Scripture is God-breathed and it's profitable for doctrine, correction, reproof, and instruction in righteousness. And you would draw a lot of instruction from Old Testament saints who fasted. When did they fast? Why did they fast? I pointed out some things. It's connected with mourning. It's connected with need. It's connected with desperation. And I think we see this play out in some of the amazing stories of the Old Testament. I want to walk through some of them briefly with you. I'm going to call your attention to four um, Old Testament characters that I think we would do well to learn from as it relates to fasting. The first I want to call your attention to is Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat. He was a king of Judah. He was one of the good kings um, in Judah. Not that he was perfect, but he was a good king. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, you have the people of Ammon, the people of Moab, and others coming to battle against Jehoshaphat. You see that in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. This was so serious that Jehoshaphat, we're told, feared. He knew it was a serious threat. And you might say, well, why did he fear? Well, there are some reasons that we could you know, assume as to why he feared. Because this was a big confederation that was coming against him, and his life was going to be threatened. If you read the chapter before, because of what he had done with respect to um, Ahab, this might have been, in his mind, a kind of outworking of God's anger towards him. Hanani, who was a seer, had given him a message in Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 2, and maybe, I can't say it for sure, but maybe in Jehoshaphat's mind, he's thinking, as this army is coming, this is an outworking of God's anger towards me for what I had done. Don't know, but for whatever reason, he feared. But his fear did not lead to paralysis. His fear did not lead to some kind of sinful cowering. Instead, this is what he did. The text tells us, and Jehoshaphat feared, and he set himself to seek Yahweh and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And then in verse 4 it says, So Judah gathered together to ask help from the Lord, and all of the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And you look in the text and you see that they sought the Lord with fasting. He feared called Judah together to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast. Here's another clue as to what fasting, when you fast. It's a seeking of the Lord. Again, context here, what is it? Desperation. My life is on the line, but not only my life, the lives of the people of Judah. We are in a desperate state. So he calls the people of Judah together. We are going to fast. We are going to set aside food. He's calling the entire nation to this. That's how serious this was. We are in a desperate state. Our lives are on the line. Put food aside and pray and seek God. See, fasting isn't just this discipline where it's like, I'm just going to go without food and I'm going to be a little bit more spiritual as I do my daily business and I just, you know, eat less. You know, it's like calorie restriction, spiritually speaking. Like, no. It's connected with seeking God. There's a desperation, and you're driven to seek God. How do you seek God? If you say, well, what does that mean to seek God? At the very least, per the context, over and over again, it's connected with prayer. You're crying out to God in prayer. You can see how Jehoshaphat did it. You look in that very context in that chapter, and you can see his amazing prayer he notes so many things there. He puts his confidence not in fasting, but in God's sovereignty. You see that in verse 6 of that chapter. He puts his confidence in the covenant that God made with his people, what God had done in the past, God's connection to his sanctuary, and he places complete dependence upon God. He knew they were no match for that great multitude that had come against them. He even said, and neither do we know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. So you say, what is fasting? Fasting is just a vehicle whereby we humble ourselves before God so as to seek the living God out of great need and out of great dependence, placing no confidence in fasting, but kind of removing, if you will, the distraction of the blessing of food so as to seek God all the more intently. Then there's the example of Ezra. In the 8th chapter of Ezra, um, Ezra, who is uh, just an amazing example in so many ways, um, Ezra finds himself with about, give or take, approximately 6,000 people with him. 
getting ready to go through a journey that's going to be hundreds of miles, maybe about 800 miles. It's going to take months, this journey. He's got the responsibility, this awesome responsibility of leading. I know it's not like Moses leading like 2 million people, but it's still a pretty big responsibility that he had, leading about 6,000 people back to Jerusalem, back to the promised land. So he's got this amazing responsibility, but he's also got a serious issue. The journey was dangerous. And as you'll see in the text, he didn't want to go to the king to receive an escort because he had basically said that God will take care of us. Listen to Ezra chapter 8, verses 21 through 23, and let's see what it teaches us about fasting. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for us, our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request from the king troops and horsemen to protect us from the enemy on the way, because we had said to the king, the hand of our God is favorably disposed to all who seek him, but his power and his anger are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and sought our God concerning this matter, and he listened to our entreaty. So there was no armed escort. He told the king, the hand of God is upon all those who seek him. And he didn't want to be a hypocrite. He didn't want to bring any disrepute upon God's name. So there at the river Ahava, he proclaims a fast. Now note what this teaches you about fasting. He says, we proclaim the fast there that we might humble ourselves before God. So if you were going to say, why am I fasting? Again, it's an outworking of humbling oneself before God. It's an outworking of your need and dependence upon God. And as you lay aside food, you're saying to the Lord, I need you more than I even need daily bread. We are dependent upon you. And again, the situation was desperate. He's he's making this journey hundreds of miles. He's got little ones with him, possessions. So for anyone who would want to rob caravans, this was like, this was a great opportunity. Look at all these possessions. Look at all these people. They could be easy pickings on the journey. So this was a life-threatening situation. And he proclaims a fast. And notice, you'll see this twice in the text, in verse 21 and verse 23, it's connected with seeking God. And the idea was that they were going to die or they were going to lose a lot of lives and they were going to lose a lot of things unless God protected them. They were completely dependent upon God and so their urgency uh, and their dependence prompted humility and fasting and prayer. Third Old Testament example I want to call your attention to, David. Um, Now we could look at more text than just this one. We could look at Psalm 35. I believe it's verse 13 when David said that he humbled or he afflicted his soul with fasting. Uh, And in that context, he's looking at people who had become his enemies. And he's remembering times where he fasted and prayed for them that they might be helped or healed. But I want to call you to, and I think this is particularly instructive for us, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 17. I won't go through the whole context, but many of you know the story of what happened. King David who was a man after God's own heart, but again, he was another fallen man who sinned nonetheless. And he sinned against um, Uriah, who was the husband of Bathsheba, and he committed adultery, and then he basically worked with one of his generals to see um, Uriah killed so that it wouldn't be found out that he had impregnated Uriah's wife Bathsheba. And the Lord would bring um, judgment upon the house of David. Severe chastisement is probably a better way to put it on the house of David. And you see that work itself out in 2 Samuel. But one of the things that happened is that the child that was born from that union was, um, became ill. The child became ill shortly after birth or upon delivery. I don't know the exact detail there. Um, and we read in 2 Samuel twelve seventeen. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. What does this tell you about fasting? Why why do I keep coming back to this? Because I want it to be ingrained in your mind. Because I think too many many times we're just like, when do I fast? Like, what's the prompting for fasting? Mourning, need, desperation, utter dependence upon God. So David sees the child as sick. And what does he do? He goes right to God 
in fasting and in prayer. And he prayed. Accompanying his pleading was fasting. It was, if you will, kind of the knee-jerk reaction, the reflex reaction of Old Testament saints. Desperation. What do we do? Fast and pray. Fast and pray. He fasted and he prayed for seven days. But in this case, it was not God's will to heal the child. And I think that's important for us to remember. Please never think of fasting as a kind of, you know, um, proverbial ace in the hole. You know, if I do this, I could twist God's arm. No, no, no. You're seeking the living God whose ways are much higher than your ways, whose thoughts are much higher than your thoughts, who's perfect in everything he does. You seek him, but you know that fasting is not a means to the end of twisting his arm. God's will will be done. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever pleases him. And we would want it that way because we believe that his will is perfect and he's perfectly good. But again, what do we learn? Desperate times for Old Testament saints so often called for instinctive, um, instinctive reactions to fast and pray. And it's hard to say what my favorite Old Testament example is, so I won't. But, um, but one that is up there is the example that we find in Esther, in Esther chapter 4. And this will be the last example I'll call your attention to um, today. In Esther chapter 4, we find another life and death situation that prompted fasting. Mordecai had recently learned of the king's decree. So again, if you want to know the whole story, you just, you just read it through. And there's this man, Haman, who was a wicked man, and he hated Mordecai. And Mordecai was a Jew, and he basically, uh, uh, basically persuades the king, essentially tricks the king, as it were, to issue this decree where all the Jews who were found in the king's provinces would be exterminated on a specific day. Mordecai hears about this and he put on sackcloth and ashes. He tore his clothes. He whipped with a better, wept with a bitter cry. Esther chapter 4 verse 1. And then the Jews, when they heard about this, you can imagine, if, if you hear that basically all of, all of you who are Jewish are going to die on a certain day, you could imagine that you would be weeping as well and tearing your clothes. In verse 3, we find out that when the other Jews who were in different provinces heard about this decree, they began to do the same thing. Well, the word gets to Esther. And Esther, as we know, um, was in a position of prominence, being in, uh, being in part of the, uh, the queen among the other ones who were in the king's harem. Um, and she, was re- she received the copy of the king's decree uh, that Mordecai provided for her. Now, at first, at first she didn't know what was going on, if I remember the story correctly, because she just hears that Mordecai is like weeping and kind of, you know, going, you know, being so upset publicly, and she was concerned about that. And then Mordecai gets the message to her to basically let her know, no, this is what's going on. Here's a copy of the king's decree. This is why I'm weeping the way that I am and have put on sackcloth and ashes. So he challenged her, you might say, to use her position as queen to intercede before the king. Now again, I know she was among other wives that the king had, but she was nonetheless in a unique position there. And at first, when you read the story, at first, she basically responds by saying, listen, Mordecai, if, maybe you don't know how this goes, but um, if anyone goes into the king's throne room without being invited, they are to be put to death, with the exception of the one to whom he holds forth the golden scepter. And then she even says, I haven't seen the king. I don't remember the exact words, but she hadn't been called to see the king in 30 days. You know, so that marriage was not an example of intimacy. You wouldn't want to practice that in your own marriages. Like, I haven't seen my wife in 30 days. But nonetheless, that's how it worked among a pagan king and, you know, those who were his wives. So she sends that message back to Mordecai. So at first, she's basically saying, "Ah, I don't think you understand. Like, I could lose my life if I do that. And then Mordecai replies... We see this reply in verses 13 and 14 of Esther 4. And Mordecai told them to answer Esther... Do you not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the Jews, all the other Jews? For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And at that point, you have to love what Esther does. Esther responds to Mordecai by telling him, 
gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan to fast for her. Did you get that? Mordecai, get all the Jews in Shushan and fast for me. Why? Because her life was on the line. And not only her life, but the lives of the Jewish people, at least from what she could see from that vantage point, although Mordecai knew that deliverance would come from another place in one way or another. And then she goes on and she says, and to neither eat nor drink for three days, night and day. She then said, my maids and I will fast likewise. And I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she knew that fasting didn't like seal the deal. You fast and done deal. God's going to do exactly what we're hoping he's going to do. No, so if, I, if I die, I die. If I perish, I perish. But she knew, because what was the thinking in the Old Testament mind? In the mind of a follower of Yahweh, in the mind of an Old Testament saint, we are desperate, we are in need. Fast. Fast and pray. We are desperate and we need to seek the living God. Gather all the Jews and fast for me. Three days, not eating or drinking. And then she said that her and her maids would do likewise. Many other fasts I can call your attention to. Um, fasting of Nehemiah, the fasting of Moses, the fasting of Elijah, the fasting of Daniel, the repentant fasting of the Ninevites, and so on, and there is more. But all this tells us that namely in a time of desperation, when faced with a challenge that seems life-threatening or insurmountable, the instinct of many an Old Testament saint was to seek God in fasting and prayer. So where does that leave us by way of application? I would say this. Do you feel spiritually dull? Fast and pray. Seek God. That's, des- that's a desperate situation. It might not, you, know, you might not perceive it to be, but if you feel spiritually lukewarm, fast and pray. You might find, like many a saint has, that it'll feel as though, oftentimes, that as you fast and seek God spiritually, it's as though a kind of spiritual lightning bolt went through your soul. And whereas you felt like the light was flickering, all of a sudden now you feel like the bulb is burning brightly. Like, I see... you're hungering for God perhaps in a way that you didn't before. So if you are spiritually dull, please hear me. Do not stay in a place of lukewarmness. Like I'm so much more interested in the world. I'm so much more interested in work. I'm so much more interested in the things of this life than I am in the living God. And I hate that. Then I'm encouraging you, if you are able, if you are in a position to, fast and pray. And let God know, as it were, your desperation in your fasting. That you are desperate for Him. And you don't want to be lukewarm. And you don't want to love the things of this world. And you don't want those things to be pushing out a love for God. Do you feel as though you are ensnared by sins that you know you are already free from? Right, if you're a believer, you've been set free. Right? You're a slave of righteousness. You have to live in the freedom wherewith Christ has made you free. Not be in bondage to yokes of legalism or not be in bondage to sin. But if you feel like you're ensnared, I would encourage you, fast and pray. Are you in a situation where you desperately need the Lord's direction? Fast and pray. Are you in a situation where you're mourning over the state of our nation, over the state of the world, longing for a move of God, whereby so many who are in spiritual darkness might come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Fast and pray. Are you facing a situation where perhaps your life, for some reason or another, may, at least perceivably, be hanging in the balance? Or you just need his help desperately in one way or another, psychologically, emotionally, physically. Seek him in fasting and prayer. Putting no confidence in your fasting but just seeking the living God who has made a way for us to come to His throne room through the blood of His Son. Seek Him. Fasting and prayer. So church, I close just by reminding you of what we essentially have covered so you have it in your mind. That fasting is an expectation for the Christian life. When you fast, they will fast. Matthew 6 and Matthew 9. That it's connected with 
moments where there is great need for direction or great desperation. And you see examples in the early church in Acts 13 and Acts 14. And you have Old Testament saints like Ezra and Esther, like David and Jehoshaphat, seeking God in times of desperation, laying aside the blessing of food and saying, I'm going to humble my soul and I'm going to visually kind of act out my dependence upon you, God, by leaving aside food and hungering, saying, I want you more than I even want food. I need you more than I need daily bread. If you don't come through, if you don't help me, if you don't provide the way, there is going to be no help and there is going to be no way that's made. And God is well glorified in that because that's an outworking of faith. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, for the abundant instruction that is found for us in so many ways in the Scriptures. I thank you for the great example of your Son who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. I thank you, Heavenly Father, that there are so many ways that you have afforded to us to bring you honor or glory, to worship you and to trust you and to live out our dependence upon you. And Father, thank you for the examples that we see and the instruction that we receive in the Scriptures as it relates to fasting. Father, I get excited about the thought of how you might use the prayer and fasting of saints in this place to advance your prerogatives and your purpose in this church, in the lives of individuals in this place, in our uh, island, Lord, in this nation and in the world. Thank you, Lord whether it's the way in which fasting and prayer was so often a kind of precursor to the historical revivals and awakenings that we see in history, or whether we see the kind of uh, reflex reaction of saints who just knew to set aside food and just to seek you in prayer and in fasting. Lord, may we be encouraged, and may you fan the flames of hopefulness, Lord. So if there'd be such a one who is in a state of desperation, or is in a state of mourning, or in a state of need, that perhaps for them, even this day, a vehicle for them to draw near to you in, um, in intimacy might be this, to not only fast, but to seek you and pray. And Lord, we ask that your will would be done, and that you would advance your prerogatives, and that you would conform us more to the image of the one who loved us and gave himself for us. The one who fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and the one who hung on a cross for our sins and rose from the grave three days later. We ask these things for the exaltation of his name, Lord, so that your name might be hallowed and your kingdom might be advanced. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.